May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So this is the fourth and final week in which we're reading from the book of Job. And after hearing last Sunday a selection from the long answer God gives to Job in his suffering, fully four chapters in which God speaks to Job of both the wonders of creation but also of its wildness and its danger, we've now come to the book's ending. The very last sentence in this book is, And Job died, old and full of days. And it might be tempting to cross our collective fingers and say, You see, it all worked out just fine. Amen. Yet in spite of the fact that Job's life seems to finish well, extraordinarily well, actually, if you add up all of the livestock he had, we're still left with some very real questions. Most obvious is the fact that while God does reply to Job's prayers of lament and protest, his questions as to why he was suffering and what he's done wrong to deserve it are never answered. What Job gets instead is an experience of the power and the glory to which he responds, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. It would seem that having been confronted by the powerful presence of God, by a direct experience of the holy, Job no longer needs an explanation. And so he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Or at least that's the way it's translated in the New Revised Standard Version in most English translations, in fact. The translation of the Jewish Publication Society, though, suggests a different angle. Not, therefore, I despise myself for having thought wrongly and repent in dust and ashes, but, therefore, I recant and relent being dust and ashes. What that Jewish translation suggests is that what Job is acknowledging is not his sinfulness, but rather his humanity, specifically the short-sightedness of his human vision. Admitting that he is but dust and ashes is like saying, remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now that Job has moved from merely hearing of God to actually seeing something of the divine, he acknowledges how little he can truly know, and so he relents or lets go of his drive to know everything. Well, it's at this point that the book moves back from poetic verse into prose. Chapter 1 and 2 of this long book are in prose, and then chapters 3 right up through this section of chapter 42, so a long chunk, has all been poetry. Now, as it returns to prose, we get something closer to resolution. If not quite 
he lived happily ever after. We do get a sense that Job's suffering is over, that he will grow old and full of days before dying what appears to be a good death. But there's much more going on than just that. As soon as Job has confessed his short-sightedness as a human, God then speaks to one of Job's friends, one of his comforters, and says, My wrath is kindled against you and against the other two of Job's friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job's friends, remember, are the ones who'd come to the poor guy with a very neat and ordered theological system to explain away his suffering, a respectably orthodox theological account. For all of their orthodoxy, they have not spoken rightly of God. And Job, who's been blown off his feet by an encounter with God and has just recanted of the smallness of his understanding, is the one who has spoken rightly all along. And then we're told that those three friends are to make sacrifices for their error and to have Job pray for them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer, the text says. Job speaking rightly of God has nothing to do with his getting his theology right. Job speaking rightly of God has everything to do with his having been prepared to speak to God and to bring to God even the rawest of his complaints and the hardest of his words, of his emotions. The three friends, on the other hand, are never once shown speaking or praying to God, but always engaged in dispassionate theologizing, just urging Job to line up his doctrinal and spiritual ducks that his suffering might go away. The theological writer Charles Williams quite famously teased C.S. Lewis for coming dangerously close to being that sort of a theological comforter, an explainer of pain, when he wrote his book, The Problem of Pain. And maybe Lewis took Charles Williams' teasing to heart when late in his life he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, a very Job-like response to the suffering and death of his own wife. If you've read A Grief Observed, you'll know how different it is, how raw it is compared to The Problem of Pain. Part of what we must hear in the book of Job is this sense that God does not need or even want us to play the role of theological defenders and apologetical advocates in the face of pain, suffering, or tragedy. God does not want us to explain it away, but would so much rather we just spoke the hardest of our thoughts of our emotions and our, our experiences to the very throne of God. So that's part of what the book is wrestling with, ultimately, but there's one real remaining problem. That along with his new wealth, all of that livestock that Bram got to read off, Job is also given seven sons and seven daughters. In the first chapter of the book... We're told that 
Job started out with seven sons and three daughters, all of whom died when their house collapsed in a great wind. Is there a parent alive who would imagine for a minute that being given a new set of children could possibly make up for the deep pain of having lost your own children in the first place? But it may be that what's in view here is the basic willingness of Job and of his wife to again have children in spite of what they know of the potential of loss. The theologian Ellen Davis writes, The great question that God's speech out of the whirlwind poses for Job and every other person of integrity is this. Can you love what you cannot control? The real question, she goes on to suggest, is how much it costs Job to become a father again. How much it costs Job to risk being a father, to risk loving again. To this, the Old Testament scholar Catherine Schiffedecker adds, Like a Holocaust survivor whose greatest act of courage is to bear children after the cataclysm, Job chooses against all odds to live again. Job and his wife choose to bear children into a world of heart-rending beauty and heartbreaking pain. Job chooses to love again, even when he knows the cost of such love. The love that Job now shows to his children is actually a radically liberating one for them, particularly for his three daughters. In the book's opening chapter, we were told that Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings on behalf of his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. A kind of a preventative sacrifice, just in case. Talk about a parent unwilling to let his children grow up and take responsibility for their own lives. He's going to keep offering preventative sacrifice just in case. Spiritually micromanage their lives. In stark contrast, in the book's closing chapter, his three daughters are noted first for their great beauty, and then they're given, frankly, sensual names. What we heard read were the Hebrew Names In English, they mean dove, which was a sign of beauty and a sign of sensuality. Cinnamon, which was a, a, a scent often associated with beauty and sensuality. And the third named a word perhaps best translated as rouge, as in red-colored makeup or adornment. And then, having given his daughters these very adult and very female names, it's noted that Job gave his three daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, that's something unheard of in the ancient world, specifically in the ancient Hebrew culture. Girls only got inheritance if there were no sons. If there were sons, 
the girls were left out. But here it specifically says he set aside inheritance for his daughters as well. In other words, rather than trying to protect his children by way of religious micromanagement, this suggests that Job was prepared to view his daughters as being women, sensual and beautiful women at that, and deserving of the dignity and freedom that comes with being given an inheritance. He was able, in other words, to love them without having to control them. It may be that the power of this great biblical book is that ultimately it evades straightforward answers, that there is no single meaning or moral of the story with which I can conclude is striking. The book asks as many questions as it answers, or more accurately, even as it provides answers, it raises new questions and new challenges. It keeps in its closing laying out these interesting threads about how Job is living on the other side of his disaster. And it asks the questions of us. Here's one more thing to consider. Job's great epiphany is that while he had formerly heard of God by the hearing of the ear, and then confesses, now my eye sees you, and it changes everything, in our gospel reading for tonight, it is the blind man, Bartimaeus, who can, in a real sense, see Jesus in spite of being physically blind. And so Bartimaeus, at the edge of the road, can cry out for mercy because he recognizes, he sees who Jesus is, though physically blind. Meanwhile, the otherwise sighted people in the crowd sternly ordered him to be quiet, unveiling the degree to which they were actually blind to who Jesus really was. Perhaps the claim placed upon us as we stand before texts like the great text of the book of Job or this gospel text from Mark is to pray that we too will be pressed beyond belief systems based on the mere hearing of God to a faith that comes from seeing like the blind man. And out of that, our words may be as truthful as Job's, as unapologetically truthful in what we're prepared to say to God and to each other. Amen.